0: So, what a man loves tells you an awful lot about that man, all right? What a man loves tells you a lot about that man. Jonathan Edwards was a theologian and a pastor who preached right before the revolution Revolutionary War in America in the 1700s, and a revival, God used him uh, to bring about a revival in America called the Great Awakening. Now, um, what happened was everybody got religious. Everybody went to church, but then years later, the question was, how many are truly saved? So people got religious, but did it result in true salvation? So Jonathan Edwards wrote a book uh, called, the the, the short name is, Religious Affections. It's basically an MRI, a spiritual MRI, examining whether somebody just got religious or whether they truly got saved. Uh, It is still the classic today. Uh, to read. Be careful, though. <laughs> um, if you're not in the right frame of mind, you will end up totally doubting your salvation. All right. But here's the key to the book: Religious Affections. Edwards says, true salvation must produce a changed heart with new affections, new loves. Your heart will now love God, love his word, love his people. Now, you can fake a lot of things. You can fake religious activity, good works, churchmanship, worship, but you can't fake a changed heart. So, uh, he has us examine our hearts for their true affections. Now, here's what I want to do this morning. And it's going to be a little bit more abbreviated. All right? um, I want to examine three loves of a man of God. If we're truly men of God, our hearts should be changed and have at least these three loves. So this is both a test kind of an examination and... An encouragement right a test to see where our hearts are at, and an encouragement to keep going in the right direction, right so three loves of a man of God, they all begin with the same letter right b um, so first of all, his Bible, a man of God who 's been truly transformed will now love his Bible. Now let me ask you this if uh, let's say you were talking with another a Christian, and they are church shopping. And they go to a church, and you ask them, how was that church? And they say, oh, it was a bunch of babies crying for milk. What would you think of that church? Would that be a good thing or a bad thing? Bad, right? Um, not necessarily. It depends which verse... You're talking about. In fact, in Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews is critiquing and criticizing them because they're a bunch of babies. He says, you need milk, not solid food. You're hard to teach because you're so slow and you're lazy. And then he says, you're a bunch of babies and you need milk, not the solid doctrine. Okay, So there, babies crying for milk is a bad thing. But Peter uses babies crying for milk as a good thing. In First Peter 2, he says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, the, the word of God, right? That by it you may grow up into salvation. All right, moms who have newborns, when that baby wants to Eat, when it's time to eat, are they nice about it? No. They scream and cry, it's time to eat, I want the milk now, right? The word long for, Theo, it means to crave, right? So here, being a baby craving for milk is a good thing. Now, here's what I want you to notice. Peter is commanding us to have a craving. He's commanding us to have a desire, to desire the word of God with the fury of a newborn screaming for milk. That's impossible. You can't command somebody to crave something, especially if they don't like it. I... I, I have never liked liver. I think liver's disgusting. Right? I remember my mom trying to convince us that liver is good for you. And she would fry it and put it with bacon and put onions with it. And still, it's disgusting. Do any of you actually like liver? You like liver? No, it's, Jim, you're the only one who likes liver, okay? I have plenty of it for you. With the, ba- the bacon helps, but that's not liver, okay? That actually comes from another animal. <laughs> so liver's disgusting. Now, if you were to command me to crave liver, I, I can't. I can try to cover up the taste. I can, you can maybe try to convince me that it's good for me, but I just can't crave liver. Now, if you're an unbeliever, You don't crave the Word of God. You know why? Paul tells us, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Oops, I cut and pasted some of my sermon in there. You don't want to see that. Okay. What what 1 Corinthians 2 tells us is that the unbeliever doesn't get the word of God. It's folly. It's foolishness. So to tell him, crave that which you don't understand is impossible. So what God is doing here in in commanding us to crave the word of God, he is assuming that along with the command, a supernatural miracle must have taken place. And that supernatural miracle is that God has changed our taste buds. Right? If you are not craving the word of God, I would be terrified. Now, I can, I can say to you, shame on you men for not reading your Bible. And you can go home and feel bad and try harder. But that's just Discipline. That's just raw discipline. It is possible to be very disciplined in reading the Word of God and going to church and going to small group, but still not crave the Word of God. If you're not craving the Word of God, like a baby, then the heart is probably not changed. And what you need is not another rah-rah sermon to to shame you into going home and coming up with another attempt at a reading program. You know what you need? Salvation. You need a new heart. You need God to change your taste buds from hating liver to loving liver. Okay? Okay discipline, there's a place for discipline, but discipline is not the issue here. You know, there's ama- amazing things that humans can can accomplish just through raw discipline. Um, I remember uh, growing up, if you were a Smith, you played football. Well, there's just no question, you were going to play football. And in fifth grade and sixth grade, there was this, uh, the sheriff in town uh, ran a little peewee football league. And my dad was part of that. And Uh, I, after school, you put on your pads and you were dropped off at the corner of Prairie and Latham. And I remember practicing football. Didn't really like it. And then on top of that, uh, we had tickets to the Bear game. And the games were on Sunday. So I, I, I practiced and missed like half the games. And people said, well, don't you... Don't you hate practicing and not playing? And I'm like, I don't know, this is just for what you do. You just you go to school, you do your homework, you do your chores, and you go to football practice. It's just, you know, part of what you do. And there are a lot of men who read their Bible because they're disciplined and they go to church, and they it's just what you do. You're raised that way, or maybe your wife brought you along, and you just do it because you're supposed to do it. But there's not a love for the Word of God. right? Now, am I saying spiritual disciplines are wrong? No. But what I'm, what I'm getting at here is not the value of discipline. I'm getting here at whether or not you've ever had your taste buds changed. So here's a, here's a picture. If you're saved, all right, this is like a boulder on top of a mountain. If you're saved, and maybe you're in a slump where you're going, yeah, I'm not reading the Bible as much as I should, but then you come to church and you hear a, a verse from Peter, and Peter says, you need to crave the word that's like a little push, and the boulder starts rolling again. But if you come to church and you hear, crave the word, and and you go, oh, that would be like pushing this boulder up a mountain, then you got to wonder if your heart has ever been changed. So my plea to you is not... Well please sign up for Bible study and please try to read your Bible. my plea for you is for you to plead to God to change your heart and save your soul. If you're not craving the word of God like a newborn baby. Okay? Now, at the same time, the command to crave the word is still a command. Which assumes that even for believers, there's still some effort involved. The effort shouldn't be like this, it should be more like this, but there's still effort involved. And some men have simply floundered in reading the word and craving the word for lack of a plan. Right? Now, I don't want to just say here, here's the plan. Make it work, and then you try it in your own strength. If, if, if we've been here before, and you've tried, and you're just not craving the word of God, cry out for salvation. If, on the other hand, you've, you know what that craving is like, but maybe it's, it's stalled, can I just... Here, here's what you need to do. Here's a plan. Own the New Testament. Own the New Testament. You, go, you mean go to the store and buy and own what? No. I mean, make it your own. You know, I, I remember when I got saved, I I was too cheap to buy a Bible, but I went through my basement and found that my grandma had a, she had died and there was a NIV that had just come out. And I'm like, oh, and I, and I started reading it. And I started in Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, then John, then Acts. And, and I met, now, I listened to Christian radio, and I went to Bible studies, but I made it my own. Until you do that, until you make the New Testament your own, you st- not your wife pushing you, not just reading our daily bread and looking up the verse, I mean owning the New Testament in context, slurping it up, reading it, thinking about it, knowing what Thessalonians says, knowing the, the outline of the book of Acts, knowing that John is different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, owning it, you're going to be a baby. You're going to be a baby. You've got to own it. Okay. Now, now, once you do that and you read it through, you know what you do? Do it a second time. And then... When you're done with the New Testament, own the Old Testament. Make it your own. So so what's the plan? The plan is you, not your wife, not your buddy who has to text you, come on, would you please come to Bible study? You, gentlemen, own your Bibles, right? Another thing, though, there are Bible studies. There are small groups. Wednesday night, guys, this this fall, um, we're going back to pastor being with the men. I'd love to have you come Wednesday nights, okay? But here's the key. Please do your homework. Don't just show up to small group or to men's group and say, oh, I love the fellowship and I love to hear different people. Did you study the passage? Did you do your homework beforehand? All right being accountable to a Bible study where you are owning it and doing the reading and thinking, then you're moving from milk to meat. Okay? Now, I'll tell you this. Valleybrook, we are looking for godly men to step it up and be leaders. Okay? Eventually, one day, maybe be elders. But if you're not a baby screaming for milk, you're far away. We need you, step one, be a crying baby screaming for the word of God. So that's the first love of a man of God. Craving the word of God. All right? Second love of a man of God. That's interesting. Love your children. <laughs> did, we, did we lose our... Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, number two. First of all, he loves his Bible. Secondly, he loves his bride. Okay. He lo- his bride, see? Look at that. All right. He loves his bride. Now... Um, I'm just going to presuppose that we all agree that Ephesians 5 teaches complementarianism, which is the, uh, the concept that God has made men and women of equal value. He loves them equally. He values us equally, but he has assigned distinct roles within marriage. All right, and the husband is the head. Ephesians 5:23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. I'm not even going to defend it. It's just um, that there is a God-appointed leader in the home, and that is the man. Okay, now, while some couples need to work on this, Right? Where the the man needs to step up and actually lead, and the wife needs to tone it down and not be leading. All right, there seems to be while that that's a that's a problem. There seems to be a lot of Christian men who have verse twenty three down, but there's no connection to verse 25, which tells us how we are to lead. There's a lot of, especially uh, Bible-believing Christians who emphasize the headship part, but the verse 25 is not so much part of the mix. Husbands, love your wives, As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see, yeah, you're the leader, but the way you lead is by dying for her. Serving her. Not going around all the time saying, remember Ephesians 5.23 says I'm the head. When you look at how Jesus led... Do you think he went around a lot saying, now guys, remember, I'm in charge here. (laughs) They just knew (laughs) that he was the Lord, right? He didn't need to voice it. He didn't need to prove it. He didn't need to pull rank all the time. In fact, they were amazed when he bent down and washed their feet and then died on the cross, right? Guys, we possess a very powerful but dangerous authority that many men have used to justify selfishness and anger and pulling rank. All right? Scripture says, Yeah, you're the leader. But use your leadership to love her as Christ loved the church. And then when it comes to fatherhood, what, what is the thing that, that Paul warns us about? It's this whole anger thing. Right? Fathers, do not provoke your children. And some versions say exasperate your children to anger. Well, how, how do you exasperate your children to anger? By being overly harsh with them. You You provoke them to anger by being angry all the time. So Paul knows our hearts. He's warning against being angry all the time. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline. There's the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Yes, there, there's a place for discipline. There's a place for, uh, you know, for having the rules and having expectations. But the overall tone is not one of, I'm in charge and da da, da, da. It's love. Okay, Guys, let me ask you this. You know, it, it, it's funny because... Some guys are like, oh, let's go deep in the word. Let's, let's give me the exegetical meaning of the word hupastasso, which means that the woman is to submit. And how about we just go real basic today? Do you have an anger problem? Are you angry? Okay. Now, um, I have hope. I have hope for us. And where I find this hope is in one of the apostles, John. You know, John had a brother named James, and in Mark chapter 3, Jesus is listing the apostles, or or, uh, Mark is listing the apostles, and in Mark 3, 17, it says, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanarges, that is, sons of thunder, Woo, you did not want to mess with these two. They were sons of thunder. And we see their thunder in one place in Luke's gospel. Jesus and the apostles are walking through Samaria, and they want to find a place to settle for the night, but the Samaritans, and and imagine this, it's not like you're driving and you pull off the road and you go to the Super 8, and they go, Sorry, we're full. And you go, oh, I got to go to the next exit. Here, you're walking. And you go to a town in Samaria. No, you can't stay in our town. So we got to walk through the night. Right? So, so they get rejected, and here's what happens. And when his disciples, James and John, sons of thunder, saw it, they said, Lord, Do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? all right? Just like uh, in the Old Testament, remember Elisha? They send the troops to arrest him, and he calls down fire upon 50 people and destroys them, and then another 50 come, and fire. And James and John are like, yes! Can we call down fire upon, upon this entire Samaritan town? And what does Jesus do? But he turned and rebuked them. No. We're not, we're not here to destroy them. We're here to save them, guys. So that's the anger of John and James. Now, by the time John writes his gospel and his three letters in the book of Revelation, he has come to be known as the apostle of love. 70 times, over 70 times, John writes about love, love one another. We've come to know we are believers if we love one another. Love, love, love. How does John go from being the apostle of anger to the apostle of love? And I'm going to suggest this. There's only one apostle that we know of who was standing at the foot of the cross, The others all scattered, but we know John was there. How do we know this? Because on the cross, Jesus says to Mary, Behold your son, and he says to John, Behold your mother. John was standing there at the foot of the cross. Now, you guys just went to Israel, right? Did you go to Nazareth? Oh, you didn't. Okay, there's this little museum in Nazareth, and they show a cross, probably the way it really was. And we have these pictures of Jesus, you know, like 30 feet up in the air. The cross was just a few feet off the ground. I mean, you could look into the eyes of the person being crucified. When you see God die for you on a cross you're transformed. I think John, an angry man, was transformed into the apostle of love because he saw Jesus die for him. What's the solution to becoming loving? Spend time at the cross. Look at the eyes of Jesus on the cross dying for you. That will transform your heart. Now, let me get real practical. You know, Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. So he's saying, you know, sometimes you need a human example. Look around. Do you see guys who are living this out? Get together with them. Pick their brains. Learn how to be a more loving, godly husband and father. Don't necessarily find the lowest common denominator, find somebody who's living it out and, and learn from them. But uh, again, let's go back to our picture. If you're sitting here this morning and you're going, Yes, I know, Lord, make me more loving. I need to love, I want to love my bride the way you love the church and you need a little nudge, that's great. If on the other hand, you go, I'm not doing that, or boy, this is going to be a... you got to wonder, have you ever been transformed? If your spirit is rebelling against this, then you got to wonder where your heart is. Okay. Third thing, and we'll, we'll end with this. You, a, a man of God has a love for the Bible, has a love for his own bride, and has a love for Christ's bride, the church, right? Now, it's really trendy today for, um, for people, especially younger people, to say, I love Jesus, but I do not want to have anything to do with the church. Okay, so... Um, That's like saying, I love Jesus, but I can't stand his wife. Jesus died for the church. Jesus loves the church. Uh, In the early church, in Acts chapter 2, it it says 3,000 people got baptized and they devoted themselves to the fellowship. In other words, They loved Jesus, and now they love one another. They loved the church. So, uh, guys, are your children watching you love the church? You know, um, the statistic is that 50 to 90 percent, somewhere between 50 and 90 percent of kids after high school no longer go to church. They drop out. I wonder if a lot of that is just the example that the parents set by not loving the church. Now, uh, last week we talked about just some practical things that that Sunday morning ought to be the pinnacle of your week. It ought to be. Rather than we'll fit it in if we have time, the attitude should be, Everything is scheduled around the gathering of the church, right? And then I said another way to love the church is by getting involved with others in a way that you are known. So when, for example, your life starts to go off the rails or you're in need of some help, you're not this independent Christian who has no relationships, but you have people who can can love you back in okay but here's here's what i want to encourage the men to do today discover your spiritual gift and use it to serve in the church first corinthians twelve seven says to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good you if you're a christian you have a spiritual gift but it's not yours It's a gift. So a lot of times people talk about spiritual gifts and they take the spiritual gift test online. Oh, what's your gift? Oh, I got this one. What's your gift? And I've got this gift that I can keep. No, the gift is the church's gift. It's just that God gives it through you to the church. And the way God gives gifts to the church is by you serving with your gift. And everybody has a place as uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 18 says. But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. Every one of you has been chosen by God to be, and if it's not in this church, then it should be in some other church where you are serving. Okay, But everybody needs to find their place of service. Okay? Now you say, but I don't know what my gift is. Well, just like everything else in life, here's how you find out. By failing. <laughs> right? By trial and error. You try and you fail. You know, I mentioned football. Um, here's what they do on the first day of fifth grade football. They line the kids up and they toss a ball to him. If he drops it, he's a lineman. if he catches it, he's an end, right? Okay. But, but then the way you really find out what your position is, is by playing. You don't know until you get out there and you play and it's okay to fail. Okay. You know, um, I was used to make funny little comments about putting some of our bigger, rougher guys in the nursery. Okay. But, um, Ryan's in the nursery. Or Ryan's in the uh, the toddler, right? You teach the toddlers, scare them to death, right? Bring them barbells over here. All right, Kylie, you know. Gonna... Ryan, Todd, Jim are going to be teaching at at uh, and Quackers. There's a fourth guy named Quackers. Who's going to be teaching the, the uh, Summer Bible Club? Um, maybe they'll bomb. Right? Yeah? Okay. Who cares? <laughs> Give it a shot. All right? Um, yeah, I, I always tell kids when I'm teaching them how to teach the Bible, try it, and if your audience falls asleep on you, maybe it's not your gift. Sign up for something else. Okay? But here's, here's the difference uh, between how how I would say Valley Brook operates in a lot of churches. I'm putting the initiative on you to find a ministry fit. A lot of guys in pride say, well, nobody's asked me. It's your job. Find a place to serve. You take the initiative, and you go, well, where do I start? Look in your bulletin. There's a list of ministries there, and the ministry leaders. Serve, okay? Um, I, I, I like it when people talk about church, and some of them say, well, we attend this church. Others say, well, we worship at this church. You know what I love to hear? We serve at this church just assumed that we all have a place to serve from the youth to the, the, I don't know, the senior saints. Everybody find a place to serve. And I should say this, a great place to serve is in a small group. Um, It doesn't have to be some big visible ministry, but where do you serve? So, um, guys, I'd love to see more guys rise to leadership in the church Step one, own your Bible, love your Bible, drink it up like a screaming baby. Serve somewhere. You know, it says of a deacon, before you appoint him and give him a title, he must first be tested, and if he proves faithful, in other words, he can do a simple task, and he faithfully carries it out, then let him be a deacon. Where are you serving? It, you may run a business. You may run a Fortune 500 company, but you don't get to automatically skip. You you start by serving because you must first prove yourself faithful. And then here's another thing. Let God promote you. The church is not a place where you are are here to get the applause of man and to... Uh, up your agenda and put something on your resume, you're here to, truly to serve, and you say, hey, if, I, if I'm quackers the rest of my life, I'm fine, okay? So, um, as, we, as we close, my question would be this. What's the next step in these three areas? In crying for the Bible, in, in loving the Bible in loving your bride and loving Christ's bride. Let me pray, then let's have the worship team come on up. Lord, we admit that apart from you and your Holy Spirit changing our hearts, we have no desire to, to love what you love. But Lord, with your Holy Spirit, you can change our taste buds, you can change our hearts. And Lord, I pray for. Uh, the men amongst us especially, that you would would put in us an incredible love for your word where we can't get enough of it. And Lord, may we uh, love our wives as Christ loved the church. And may we love the church in a way that reflects your love. And we ask for you to do a work in each of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.